Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international studies, produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association, and made available through the ISA Professional Resource Center. My name is Jamie Free, Professor of Global Politics and Director of the Center for Engaged Learning at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with an engaged and innovative teacher of international studies. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by exploring the ways that teachers of global politics from different institutional and societal contexts wrestle with the problems that define our relationships with students and with the academic discipline we help them understand. Connecting to each other through the processes of teaching IR creates a community from which we can all draw encouragement and inspiration. Today's conversation is with Dr. Aparna Devere, Assistant Professor of International Relations in the Department of Political Science in the School of Social Science at the University of Hyderabad in India. Aparna teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in IR, IR theory, post-colonial theory, Indian political thought, and religion and global politics. Our conversation explores the use of literature as a way of connecting students emotionally to post-colonial politics, adaptations necessary to teach to a wide variety of backgrounds and levels of student preparation, especially with respect to the common language of instruction, and the power of establishing personal connections with students as a way of empowering their learning. Parna Davre, welcome to The Teaching Curve. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So uh, the way we usually start these conversations mm -hmm. is that I want to give the audience a sense of where you're coming from and what your institutional background mm -hmm. for your where your teaching is like. Um, and one of the best ways to do that is to talk about not just the institution, but also the students that are there. So uh, I was hoping you could describe both of those things for us. Sure. I actually did my PhD at American University in DC and then moved um, back to India where I'm originally from um, and moved to a city called Hyderabad. And I'm at the University of Hyderabad, which is actually a public university. It's, um, it's a large, uh, prominent uh, public university. So it draws students from various backgrounds. So there are students from different class, caste, religious and socioeconomic backgrounds that come from all over um, India. More from South India since it's located in South India, but we also have students who come from the Northeast and some students from the North of India. Yeah. And so is there, um, it, does it have a specialty? Is there, uh, in the public system, does it have a particular niche? Right, so it's stronger in the sciences because the South of India actually is, um, is very math and science oriented in general. So it is a stronger university for the sciences, but it does have a strong um, humanities and um, a political science department. Fortunately, we're one of the, the very strong political science departments in the country. We're rated in the top five. And so um, a lot of students do come for the social sciences, political science, sociology. Those are very strong departments. We have a, a good journalism and communications program, media studies as well. Fantastic. So yeah, these are the, the programs that do well. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about your what classes you teach and, and kind of your approach to teaching global politics? Okay, so I teach 
So we just a couple of years ago, we introduced um, undergraduate teaching because typically in Indian universities, you that's it's it was only uh, masters and PhD programs that were offered, and it's the colleges that do the undergraduate teaching. So the way it works is you have you know colleges and then you have universities. But um, a few years ago, the university introduced an undergraduate program and, and called it an integrated program. So once you get into the undergraduate program, you can get in automatic, automatically into the master's program. So it's like an integrated degree where you get both your undergraduate and your uh, master's. And you can also choose to exit if you want. But a lot of people just come in and do a five-year program, five program where you get both degrees. So we so we are doing undergraduate teaching now for the last several years, you know, which was a new experience having done only um, graduate and PhD teaching so mm -hmm. far. And so is in the I know in the British system it's usually kind of three mm -hmm. years for an undergrad yes, degree. It still it? is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a three-year undergraduate and then two-year master's degree, yeah. And That's... they end up with a master's in political science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so and so what kinds of classes do you get to teach? Right. So I teach, um, like as I said, now I teach the undergraduate class in uh, intro to IR. And then I teach intro to IR at the uh, master's level. And um, I also teach um, uh, my own courses. So the, the course that I teach, which is my own elective course, is a post-colonialism and IR course. So it's, uh, it's called Colonialism and International Relations. How do you describe how you approach teaching those things? Well, how, how do you describe your teaching? So I, you know, I started off teaching uh, in a more, I think, bookish fashion, just the more old style or what I was used to. Mm. And over the years, I've realized that I'm just trying to move away from that way of teaching, you know, where you just focus on the text. I mean, of course, I, I still do that, but I feel like that isn't enough anymore. You know, I think that I've I've evolved. My own teaching is a, has is been has been evolving, and I think now I feel like um, the visual is also very important. You know, and I'm trying to do a lot of that now in my classes, where um, I'm using a lot of film, um, much more than I used to. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this colonialism and IR course, I taught almost entirely through literature hmm. and film. Interesting. And um, yeah, I used, I used a few, you know, IR readings in the beginning, um, just kind of set the tone of the class, but it just, it didn't, I just, I didn't feel like they, they were that interesting, frankly. Um, I used, so I ended up using a lot of literature, uh, film, and I used things like speeches from leaders, you know, biographies, biographical writings from leaders hmm. and, and prominent people. Um, so I just tried to really use different kinds of sources. And I feel like it, it really worked. I mean, it mm -hmm. took some time, even for me, to move away from the mode that I was so used to. Yeah. You know, I mean, I began thinking, OK, I need to introduce the students to the debates and the discipline, you know, and I need to get all those readings out there so that they know what's going on in the discipline. And that's how I, I started teaching these courses. Yeah. You know, I gave them a lot of articles and I said, OK, you need to know what's going on in the discipline. And after a point, I was like, you know what, this is this this isn't what it's supposed to be about. Hmm. 
they, they have to start thinking for themselves. I mean, it's not, it's not, I'm not trying to just teach them about the discipline. Right. I just felt like that wasn't that important anymore. Right. Uh, it was, it was for them to sort of think and feel. I think the feeling part of it was missing in the way I was teaching. Uh, the, the courses, you know, you, you do these abstract readings and it's fine. You, you know, you're, you're thinking, you're learning, but where's the feeling? Mm. And when I started introducing the literature and the film, the speeches, you know, it just, it just changed the course and it changed the way people started reacting to the course and the way the students were, were responding. Because they could connect a little bit more or put themselves in that place, perhaps, exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Because a lot of these, the readings that I was, you know, at first the articles that I was, was giving them, um, they just felt disconnected and distant. And then when I started changing the sources, you know, there was just so much more of a connection. Mm. And it's also because students come from such different backgrounds. You know, they come from um, some of them. In fact, many of my students are first generation university students. Okay. You know, their, their parents were farmers, uh, carpenters, you know, um, uh, villager, people who lived in the villages, small towns, you know, doing the kind of professions where they weren't, were not going into universities. Right. And so um, a lot of them could relate to some of these uh, materials much more. Mm. And there's also the issue of language because many of them, you know, are some of them struggle with English. But the thing is, because we have it's the colonial legacy. Yeah. So all the universities are um, taught in everything is done in English. Hmm. In fact, the irony is if you write your entrance exam in an Indian language, you're disqualified. Wow. Yeah. You cannot write an entrance exam to the university in any language but English. So, and you have a large population of people who are not very, very skilled in English, right? right. I mean, they're, they're familiar, but they're not like, they're, they're not that fluent. So just think of the dynamics there. Yeah, yeah. You, know, I mean, you have a whole set of people who are not able to come to university just because they're not familiar with English. And then you're teaching in a classroom where some students are, are struggling and you're trying to tell them, look, decolonize, decolonize. <laughs> right. And, and I'm teaching in English. And if you don't know English, too bad for you, you know. And, and the readings are probably all in English, too, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's all our regular, you know, the readings that we use even in, in the U.S., right? In mm -hmm. North America, the same, the same materials. You know, I use the same materials. Yeah. That some, some of the same materials that I was using here. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's so complicated, right? Because you're, uh, you're often in a position where then I have to penalize people because they haven't written good papers. And some yeah. of it, some of it is skill and some of it is the language issue. Right. But I'm like penalizing people because they don't, they don't, you know, they're not able to communicate effectively. So it's a, it's, a, it's, it's just, um, these are some of the challenges. For sure. You know, when you're trying to sort of translate global practices and you're, mm -hmm. you're trying to say, oh, we're, we're in this globalized world. Well, look at the the, the 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 issues here because you're basically telling people that you know you better learn English and learn it really well, or else you're just going to you're not going to do well. Or you're going to fall behind. Yeah. And I'm trying to tell people to decolonize. So it's just such an irony. It is know, for sure. The whole situation. Yeah, that's. Uh, um, it, are there any of the 
the literature that you use, you know, the, mm -hmm. uh, what, um, any chance of assigning something in an Indian language from, you know, a, a literature perspective or would that yeah. not apply? Yes. But the problem is everybody speaks a different Indian language. Yeah, right. So that would raise those issues and it would also, you know, it would just not work out because everyone has a different language they're bringing in. Mm. There's no, yeah. you know, standard. This, it's not like there's one Indian language. Right. right. So that would right. be an issue too. And we're not, we're not sort of encouraged to do that. Um, uh, and, it's, and it's, I, it's, an, it's an English language university and we're supposed to follow that. Yeah. So, um, but, but I saw so what I, what I tried to do is I try to introduce world literature. So we, you know, we read, we read Chinua Achebe, we read um, Jamaica Kincaid, you know, you read literature from all over the world. And that to me is a great way to understand the world. For sure. Right. And we talk about the global. I feel like that's such an effective way to try to understand what is the global. Mm -hmm. And, so, you know, yeah. What about your what about the interaction in the classroom? Is it mm -hmm. is it mostly watching films and lectures? Is there discussion? What kind of things happen in your classroom? Yeah. So we, there's a lot of discussion. I mean, I, I do give them a lot of readings, um, you know, and um, what I try to do is tell them to to uh, to read and obviously we you know we I focus on discussion, but I also find students are very hesitant to speak. You know, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, some of it is shyness. Some of it is you know just not wanting to sound stupid. Some of mm -hmm. it is language. Some of it is gender. You know, so um, the women sometimes the women students you know are. A little unsure, you know, so you have a lot of dynamics there as to why students are hesitant to speak. But I do feel over a period of time, I think once uh, you know, the comfort level goes up, that gets that becomes better. And so what I really try to do is I try to have classrooms interaction uh, interactions outside the classroom as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of interaction outside the classroom. So when we do the film, sometimes we'll just all and I'll say, let's go have tea or we'll have tea and try to like, you know, do it informally. Yeah. So just getting to know everyone. But this is, of course, possible only in the small classes. The, the big classes that I teach, which are like 75 students, you know, the intro to IR courses, you just can't do those kind of things. Yeah. So that ends up being more like a lecture class, unfortunately. And that's just the way it is. I mean, I think that's the way for anyone who teaches big classes, right? Yeah. No, is I, you're, you're in that mode, yeah. And I don't think it's, uh, I, I'm certainly in my experience, it's not particular in any way that students have to, find m most of my students have to be comfortable enough to find their voice to participate. Yeah. Yes. It's not something that most of my students come in ready to do. Right. And so paying attention to that right, right. is part of what I'm trying to do in my classroom. And so I, I don't think that that's unique in any way. Right, um, right. It's intimidating to come in and, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. class. Sure. Sure, it is. And that, so that process takes time. I think that's anywhere. But unfortunately, like I said, in the big classes, you don't even you can't even do much of that, mm. you know, because you're just sitting, you're standing up there and you're you sometimes have to do PowerPoint, which I don't like doing, but I have to do because if I have 75 students, you know, yeah. um, and then and for that, I just use the the standard IR textbooks and things, you know, because because that's what you know, you you can't really do much in those kind of classes. Well, and, and yeah. especially at an institution where the next layer of classes are expecting mm -hmm. your students to have 
particular things that they're supposed to get. You know, your your colleagues are weighing in on what should be in your intro class so that they can assume that sure. when they get to the next level, yes. you know? Exactly. So you have certain things that you have to cover. And you have to say, look, I covered this and, you know, we, we did this, right? So we have to talk about certain things. Mm -hmm. So those classes, you just, <clears throat> you just do what you're supposed to do, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, the only thing I do try to do in those big classes, I try to, I try to know everybody's name. So even if they're like 75 or 80 students, I try to make sure I know everybody's name by, mm -hmm. you know, in a, by about a month's time. And I try to at least know a little bit about them. Uh, it's hard because, you know, many students are also not very comfortable with that, right? They want to kind of be an, an anonymous and mm -hmm. slip into the background. But I, that's what I, I try to do that because I think it's important to make that connect. And uh, in the university, you're always trying to find students who will come back, right, and do a PhD or come back and do a master's at least. So you're always trying to find possible recruits. Yeah, know, yeah. Say, okay, you know, stay on, do this, you know. Is there anything yeah. about how the um, the kind of high school or college system mm -hmm. that sends students to you that can you tell the kind of pedagogical tactics and strategies that have brought particular, you know, some students might be willing to participate in discussions and right. others are much more prone to what you said, like trying to fade right. into the background. Right. But Can you're you right. It's that? also what kind of, yes, I mean, it depends on what schools they've been to, uh, what they've been exposed to. And that's why it's so difficult in the beginning because everybody's at a different level, you know, and both in terms of class, because you have some students who are, you know, um, who are affluent, who've been to like really good schools. Mm. Some of them are very, very fluent in English and very articulate. And then you'll have some from rural backgrounds, you know, who, who've uh, not had the same kind of exposure. So in the beginning, it's 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 really hard because uh, it's uh, you know it's not a level playing field, right? So you and you have to try to make everybody feel like they have the space and they have and that they um, they can be accepted for who they are. Mm -hmm. That and they belong the there. Yes, yes. The feeling of belonging. And so that has to be established. And I think that's where the, the role of a teacher is so important. So for me, it's not just about what I'm, what, you know, knowledge I'm imparting, but it's also about trying to create that space and that level of comfort and that feeling of belonging, that you belong here and you have the right and you have the space, just, to, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so, so I think that's where it's, it's not just, I mean, you're a teacher, but you're so many more things in that mm -hmm. classroom, right? Yeah. So I end up also feeling very often like I'm a mentor because a lot of students do come to me, you know, uh, in the one-on-ones or they come and talk to me or um, I often try to talk to them separately because so many of them have so many challenges that they're facing at home. You know, whether it's financial or it's mm -hmm. psychological or, you know, is, is mental health issues. Of course, that's everywhere, I think. But that mental health issues are also combined with things like uh, socioeconomic problems mm -hmm. or, or problems at home, you know, that are quite, quite severe. And so that obviously hampers the student's ability to participate and also be to focus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of the outside mentoring that happens and we don't we don't have formal counselors and therapists mm -hmm. and psychologists. I mean, we 
we do, we may have one for the university or two, but you know, it's, it's just, and there's a lot of taboo about going to people who are counselors or, or psychologists. Mm -hmm. And so I often feel like I'm stepping up to do those kind of things as well. Like and, not, not psycho as a psychologist, but as a mentor. And does that feel like you know? something that you, <clears throat> that is particular to your approach, or do you think that that's a, something that the students are expecting or are they coming to you because you're somehow exuding this welcoming yes. persona perhaps perhaps it's a bit of both yeah you're right perhaps i'm just open to it and it's also some of it is that they just don't know who else to go to mm -hmm. so it's it's just both well you're learning their names and you know in a yeah, big, exactly, in, yeah. and that right. Uh, right. that is in and of itself that you're seeing them right Right. You recognize them not just mm -hmm. as a as a room full of people, you know. Right. Because somewhere along the way, I've realized that teaching is is also about compassion and about values, and it's not just about the knowledge that we're trying to impart. And so mm -hmm. somewhere, it's I feel like that also should be conveyed in the classroom, not just between me and the students, but even amongst the students and and, and between them. And somehow, um, somehow we have to connect education to all that as well and mm -hmm. not just assume that it's just about, you know, the texts or what, you know, or IR formally what we're teaching in IR. Yeah. It's about people. Right? I mean, exactly. really it's, it's it, you're seeing that an education is about producing somebody who can be a fully competent member of whatever right. community they go off to be part of. And, and, uh, Commit. I mean, someone who's also empathetic to what's going on in the world around them. Mm -hmm. right. I don't want to say who wants to change the world because I'm I'm a little hesitant about those kind of things. But I think the empathy, the ability to be empathetic to those around you and to the world around you, I think is important. Yeah, for sure. And, and something so, that is yeah. you know developmentally appropriate at that stage of of a student's life. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, Aparna, I really want to thank you for coming and sharing this. Uh, it's it, it's been really informative for me mm -hmm. to, to understand a little bit more about how teaching can differ, even though it's something that unites us all. How how mm -hmm. it different sure. contexts mm -hmm. and what uh, what you're able to do in your context and how that is similar in many ways and yet different too, mm -hmm. depending mm -hmm. on the students and the institutional context. Yeah. And hopefully once we're past COVID, you maybe we'll try to get you over to come there. I would love and, to. And get a firsthand experience of, of, you know, the classrooms there. That's a great idea. Yeah. I, yeah. I, that is, uh, I, I've got a world tour set up of coming okay. to experience <laughs> how different people uh -huh. teach in different areas because it really is something that that I learn something every time I mm -hmm. talk to somebody about. Sure. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for, for having me and for giving me this opportunity. I'm so glad you, we were able to make it happen mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. good luck. And we'll talk to you again, hopefully, when we're able to get together at mm -hmm. conferences. Mm -hmm. And as you said, sure. to travel in yes. other places, that would be definitely that would be nourishing. Yes, thank you. And you take care too. stay safe. The Teaching Curve podcast is made available on the Professional Resource Center of the International Studies Association under the auspices of ISA's Innovative Pedagogy Initiative. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isanet.org. Please follow us on Twitter 
at Teaching Curve. Thank you for joining us on The Teaching Curve, and remember, learn something every time you teach.